in this country, socialism, you've all heard it, it's often been the catchphrase used to basically instantly dismiss any talk of building social safety nets. But if you look at the countries around the world, those countries with a we mentality are actually much happier and healthier than those with what we have in the United States, which is more of a me mentality. And so now the future of social safety nets, which we personally, the two of us think are really important to get this country out of operating from a baseline level of fundamental crippling fear and back to functioning more as a society. And just as a side note, if you're a woman, love a woman or are of a person of childbearing age, you know, safety nets are something that are especially important. You know, this future of social safety nets is a consideration that is before the Supreme Court of our land. And so we're here on Fireside with what should amount to be about a 20-minute conversation, like I said, but we'll open it up to Q&A after if anyone wants to stick around. But in order to honor your time right now, with this important conversation about major considerations before the Supreme Court that have the potential to impact all of us, we are psyched to have you all here. If you're listening to this after the fact and want more info on Fireside, obviously drop us a line at hello at dearwhitewomen.com. Because Misasha and I are actually doing this as an extension of our podcast, the Dear White Women podcast, which is a show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism. And we are your biracial hosts, Sarah and Misasha. So on this topic, as Heather Richardson Cox noted in her daily newsletter, which is a fantastic read for those of you who aren't familiar with it, she wrote about this on March 21st. And she was writing about former President Trump and then Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who was known for saying, leave no vacancy behind, and their role in reshaping the federal judiciary. So the biggest way we saw this play out was through Trump's three appointees to the Supreme Court. If you recall, McConnell refused to hold hearings for Obama's nominee, Merrick Garland, who is now President Biden's attorney general, back when President Obama was still in office, saying that. Garland's nomination in March 2016 was too close to the November presidential election to permit an appointment. This obstruction created an opening for Trump's first nominee to the Supreme Court, which was Neil Gorsuch. And then when Justice Anthony Kennedy retired in 2018, Trump replaced him with Brett Kavanaugh. Then, and more recently, when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away, Trump replaced her with Amy Coney Barrett less than two weeks before the November 2020 election. And I remember that. But can you tell me, why is this important? Okay, that's a great question. And it's important for several reasons, actually. So first of all, when you're appointed as a Supreme Court justice, you're appointed for life. There are few government jobs that you die in, and this is one of them. So then if you're moderately young when you're appointed, like some of the recent nominees, you can shape the future of this country's judiciary and laws for decades, basically. Yeah, that is a huge responsibility and a huge indication of whether individual rights will expand or contract and in which areas, depending on how each justice views and holds various ideological positions. All right. So that was the first one. First reason. The second reason is that currently the court, our Supreme Court, is made up of nine justices. And as I just mentioned, Trump appointed three of those, which is a full third of the court. The court votes on a simple majority, which means you just need five votes to really have a winning argument. So when Trump replaced three previously liberal justices with three conservative ones, it obviously then skewed the court to the right. Right. And Chief Justice Roberts, who had been on the conservative side of the court when he was appointed, is now the swing vote, which is that person who's in the ideological middle of the court and could be the deciding vote in a close call. Remember, though, he's still a conservative. So if he's the ideological middle, that's your indication that the court is leaning more conservative. 
But the thing is, we may not have these close calls because the court is running so far to the right right now. All right. So back to why else this is important. Have you heard of the non-delegation doctrine? No, I'm not a lawyer. You are. (laughs) And if you haven't also, I don't think you're alone in that. Can you tell us more? Because I honestly have no idea what you're talking about. Yes. And if this seems unrelated to how we started this show, I think you'll see why this is important in a second. So according to Julian Davis Mortensen and Nicholas Bagley, who are the authors of this piece in the Columbia Law Review, non-delegation was invented in 1935 to undercut the business regulation of the New Deal. So in the first 100 days of his term, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt set out to regulate the economy to combat the Great Depression. Under his leadership, Congress established a number of new agencies to regulate everything from banking to agricultural production. So most Americans loved these new rules with a big asterisk, unless you were a business leader. So that's when the court got involved and in two separate decisions ruled that Congress could not delegate its authority to administrative agencies, basically to carry out various functions. Okay, so hearing that, President Roosevelt threatened to increase the size of the court because he didn't like that decision. So I'm just going to say that whole debate about the size of the court expanding or diluting the power that just was in the last couple of years. So that's nothing new. And it's been done before or certainly threatened to have been done before. It's not new. Yes, correct. And when he threatened that, the justices also realized that, you know, the public didn't really like what they had said in those decisions. And that sort of undermined any real court opposition to the New Deal. So that's largely where this theory stayed, and there were no more challenges to that until the 1980s, when conservative lawyers began to look for ways to sort of rein in the control of the federal government. So back to Heather Richardson Cox's newsletter, she notes that in 2001, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected the argument in a decision written by Justice Scalia, who's still on the court, who said the court must trust Congress to take care of its own power. So Congress, he's saying that Congress has the power to delegate its own power however it wants. But after Justice Thomas suggested that he might be open to that argument, conservative scholars really woke up and began to say that the framers of the Constitution did not want Congress to delegate authority. And again, that would mean Congress taking the power that it has to make certain rules and laws and giving those to smaller state agencies or other extensions of the federal government. So the authors of that law review article said that that argument can't stand. It's just making stuff up and calling it constitutional law. I've had enough conversations with you, Misa, should it feel like it's kind of similar to using the Constitution to justify maybe anything lately, like twisting it to suit your needs, which seems to have been happening in a number of other situations. Totally. And I'm glad that everyone's recognizing that. So you know, even though we believe that to be true, Republican appointees on the Supreme Court have really come to embrace that idea that this was the original framers of the Constitution didn't really want Congress to delegate that authority. So now we're fast forwarding a little bit to November of 2019. So on the same day that then Senate Majority Leader McConnell boasted on Twitter that the Senate had confirmed more than 160 new federal judges since Trump took office, which is shockingly, one out of every four federal judges, if you're counting, and would continue to confirm them as fast as possible. Justice Kavanaugh sided with Justice Gorsuch, which are obviously both Trump appointees, to say that the court should re-examine whether or not Congress can delegate authority to administrative agencies. So along with Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, they believe that the Constitution doesn't allow that delegation. 
So if you've been counting, we have four justices who believe that Congress can't delegate that power. If Justice Barrett sides with them, resurrection of that doctrine will curtail the modern administrative state. And this is problematic because since the 1930s, that administrative state has regulated businesses, provided basic social safety nets, and promoted infrastructure. So on a larger scale, if you're wondering what this really means, as Justice Kagan pointed out, this doctrine would then mean that most of government is unconstitutional. So again, gone are any attempts at social safety nets, gone are the framework around how we can regulate business, gone are true attempts to build and rebuild, especially crucial in a post-pandemic world. I'm still just shaking my head because in other words, we've effectively removed the role and the power of government in trying to play a role in creating equity in the American economy and in society. And so I'm sitting here being like, how I don't understand how this argument can even be a thing because you're saying the government's not a government, then it has no power to be a government. And without that tool, I feel like we'd have some serious problems because then who regulates what we do? And my thing is, if you guessed business leaders, I think you're probably right, which is scary because we know what motivates business leaders and it's not necessarily the good of the people. And so I want to sort of hone this conversation down into a little bit more about how this might affect women and men and families. And it's pretty dramatically because this extends to our thoughts on abortion. And I know for a lot of people, it is a heavily weighted word, but I want you to just hear us through because abortion is potentially just a social safety net issue. But because of the religious and moral arguments that are so tightly intertwined with a woman's right to choose what happens to her body and a woman's right to health care and past precedent from the court, it's become so much more. And CNN notes that conservative Supreme Court justices have demonstrated a desire to reverse prior decisions on abortion rights. So the question is, when and how far at least five justices will go to overturn rulings that support a constitutional right to end a pregnancy? Because sometimes it's not just a single ruling like overturning Roe v. Wade in some fell swoop. Sometimes it's the more insidious, smaller steps like forbidding clinics from challenging restrictions on behalf of women to relaxing the standards that states must meet to limit women's access to the procedure that can do the very same thing in the end. The impact of it will remain the same. Right. And the justices are pretty clear about what they think about abortion. You know, Justice Thomas has written, our abortion jurisprudence has spiraled out of control. He is the court's most consistent critic of abortion rights rulings dating to the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, which made the procedure legal nationwide. And Justice Neil Gorsuch has separately complained that justice's standards are muddled and said last year, quote, in a highly politicized and contentious arena, we have lost our way. And yes, he was talking about abortion in that comment. Justice Alito has attacked decades old precedent that allows physicians and other third parties to sue states over regulations that might impinge on a pregnant woman's rights. His position would reduce challenges to state abortion laws. So you've got six Republican appointed justices who are largely leaning towards limiting access, and that's setting up a direct clash with the court's three remaining Democratic-appointed liberals. Also, multiple related laws are headed you know, to the Supreme Court as states continue to adopt new prohibitions, including very recently the near-total Arkansas abortion ban passed earlier this month with no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. Yeah, I mean, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson said he signed that law because it's a, quote, direct challenge to Roe v. Wade and that it has a narrow chance of getting to the Supreme Court. He said that's the whole design of the law. And he said this on CNN's show. So, you know, it's not constitutional under Supreme Court cases right now. And so let's just take that in. Like he signed a law because it's a direct challenge to abortion access for women on a federal and national scale. Like that's the only reason 
the law was signed in. And it makes, it's not, I'll leave it there with my thoughts about that, but. <sighs> right. But that's not the only potential challenge that the Supreme Court could take up. The court could also challenge abortion rights if they take up Mississippi's ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy, as they were discussing just this past week. If the justices were to consider reversing decades old precedent through doing this, it would intensify national divisions around this topic. Even if the justices ultimately deny the Mississippi petition, the case could give individual justices a chance to issue statements relative to the denial, which would lay out their arguments for future rollbacks of reproductive rights. Wait, so what case, which one is this that you're talking about anyway? Okay, so the Mississippi officials have appealed a U.S. appellate court ruling that invalidated this 15-week ban because Supreme Court precedent prevents prohibitions on pre-viability abortions, or in other words, when the fetus would be unable to live outside the womb. Referring to the high courts, and that's the Supreme Court's traditional balancing of interests, the appellate court wrote, until viability, it is for the woman, not the state, to weigh any risk to maternal health and to consider personal values and beliefs in deciding whether to have an abortion. But this pending case from Mississippi already reveals signs of conflict among the justices. They have considered but then postponed action on this dispute for nearly six months listing it for discussion in private sessions, yet offering no word on whether they would reject it, as they have similar cases of early pregnancy abortion bans, or they haven't scheduled it yet for oral argument and decision. So they've discussed it privately, but they have not yet made a statement whether they're going to move forward with it or not. Disputes in this area of the law nearly always come down to the vote of a single justice and generate tensions all around. So on the current bench, just to recap, Justices Thomas, who's 72 years old, Alito, who's 70 years old, and Gorsuch, who's 53, have staked out relatively ground. Robert, Chief Justice Roberts, who's 66, and Justice Brett Kavanaugh, 56, have voted to ease the legal test covering state regulation of abortions and sent mixed signals on overruling core precedent. And I'm saying their ages with their names because you've got an idea of how much longer they could potentially be on the bench with that. The court's new sixth conservative justice, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, who's 49 and a committed Catholic, has yet to write an opinion on an abortion case. But before joining the bench, she expressed skepticism for reproductive rights. I mean, and if you forget what Lindsey Graham said about her during her confirmation hearing, then, then we'll remind you. I mean, it says, this is the first time in American history that we've nominated a woman who's unashamedly pro-life and embraces her faith without apology. Gives any indication of what we might expect. So... That's the right side of the bench. On the left side of the bench, Justices Breyer, who's 82 years old, Sonia Sotomayor, who's 66, and Justice Kagan, who's 60, have consistently voted to reform abortion rights and diminish the power of states to restrict women's access to the procedure. But what's really important here is to listen to the arguments that are being made because they indicate how these arguments are going to come in the future as well. In urging the justices to hear Mississippi's appeal of the lower court ruling, State Attorney General Lynn Fitch has asked the court to clarify its standard, to disallow clinic lawsuits on behalf of women, and to erase the dividing line for re restrictions based on the viability of the fetus. So on the other side, the Jackson Women's Health Organization, which is represented by lawyers from the National Center for Reproductive Rights, countered that for nearly 50 years, the Supreme Court has said that states may not prevent a woman from ending her pregnancy before the fetus would be able to survive outside her body. And this is what they wrote about that. Before viability, the state's interests, whatever they may be, cannot override a pregnant person's interests in their liberty and autonomy over their own body. 
And to put this in context, in the original abortion touchstone, which is Roe v. Wade, the justices declared that women have a constitutional right to privacy that covers the decision to end a pregnancy. And it's important to remember, because it's often misconstrued, Roe v. Wade is still narrow in that it does not provide a blanket right to abortion at all times, in all forms, unlike some common misconceptions. Current court standards really sort of pin onto a 1992 landmark case, which is called Planned Parenthood of Southeastern Pennsylvania versus Casey. It's often called Planned Parenthood versus Casey in the shorthand. When the court reaffirmed the declaration in Roe v. Wade that women have a right to abortion before viability, which the justices placed at 23 or 24 weeks and forbade government from putting a, quote, undue burden on that right. And last year on the podcast, we actually talked about June Medical, which was the Louisiana case over credentialing requirements for physicians who perform abortions around like where they could perform them. Yes. And that Louisiana case, June Medical, was based on another 2016 case in Texas involving a similar physician restriction. And in that 2016 case, the court actually struck down a Texas law, which thereby requiring judges to balance the health benefits that a regulation might offer pregnant women with its potential burden on, again, that word, on their right to an abortion. Based on that 2016 case, because the Supreme Court loves precedent, it's very important in legal analysis that you have some lawsuit that was decided prior that you can base your current analysis on. And based on that 2016 case, Chief Justice Roberts provided the fifth vote to liberals to invalidate the Louisiana version in 2020. But he, much like the rest of the conservative side of the court, found that 2016 standard flawed. And in doing so, he declined to sign the majority opinion, which is typically what happens when the justices agree you write a majority opinion and then you write a dissenting opinion. He didn't sign the majority opinion. He wrote his own opinion. And in doing that, his narrower approach would give greater discretion to state legislators and enhance their ability to justify abortion restrictions. So in that, in his own opinion, he wrote and referred to that Planned Parenthood versus Casey a case and wrote, nothing about Casey suggests that a weighing of costs and benefits of an abortion regulation was a job for the court. And so he's not necessarily the swing vote on abortion anymore, but Chief Justice Roberts is still influential. He added further that trying to, you know, analyze weighing the costs and benefits of an abortion regulation for the court would require the court to act as legislators, not judges, which is problematic because that suggests that the Supreme Court shouldn't necessarily be deciding these cases, and they might decide to reverse, you know, abortion rights, the standards that we do have, and send that back to lower courts and other groups. So this brings us now to states like Alabama and Mississippi, those states that we talked about at the start that might provide those challenges to Roe v. Wade in the Supreme Court. Words matter, which apparently that is clearly the theme of 2021, and precedent matters. There are laws that are being signed solely to challenge Roe v. Wade, but that is just one social safety net that we've highlighted today and just one standard that could be under attack. I mean, what we do know, though, is that if abortion is further restricted, it doesn't mean that people are not going to get abortions. It means that there will be more risk to get them and that if you have money and privilege, you'll probably always be able to get them. Or will you? And should money and privilege be our baseline for access to a procedure like that anyway? If we shrink the government, like the first half of this conversation was dedicated to, and if we delegate power to the individual states or to big business, think about who your decision makers are going to be and how they may 
or may not have everyone's best interest in mind, including yours, that of your families and your community as a whole. And that's why we need to pay attention to these cases. Love what you're hearing? Follow us at the Dear White Women podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts to get our fresh new insights on how you can help dismantle systemic racism one conversation at a time every Wednesday. Do you love learning via visuals? Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Dear White Women Podcast and at Twitter at DWW Podcast. And do you want us to keep making good work? Support our Patreon and keep an eye out for opportunities to use our webinars, DEI consulting work, and more if you want us to help bring change into your own spaces. 